0: Smokey Joe Wood, I hate to say it, but his name was really Howard. Smokey Howard Wood. The family went to a circus when he and his brother were kids, and there were two clowns there, Moe and Joe, and the brothers thereafter, one was called Moe and one was called Joe. So Smokey Joe Wood came from the Joe, but it really was Howard on his birth certificate. Smokey Joe Wood was in the Major Leagues for 15 years, from 1908 to 1922. He was with the Red Sox and the Cleveland Indians. He was one of the great pitchers of his era, hurt his arm, came back to the big leagues as an outfielder, and one year hit over 350 as an outfielder. Joe Wood, after his career as a ball player, became a baseball coach at Yale University. And prior to his death in 1985, when he was 95 years old, the president of Yale University, Bartlett Giamatti, who later became the commissioner of baseball, presented him with an honorary Yale degree. He had never graduated from high school, and this pleased Joe Wood just tremendously. To be presented with an honorary doctorate by Yale University was a great great thing in his
1: life. I often look back on it now. I see these Wild West pictures in the movies and on TV and so on. Now, when we lived in Colorado, Larry, and we went through all that in real life. Yeah. those big stagecoaches with the guards sitting up with their rifles on the back end, guarding Gold William coming down from the mines. We saw all that in real life, all of that.
0: It's just a movie to me, you know.
1: Of course, they enlarge a little on it in all the years that we were out there, which was five years, and I used to see these big buses every day coming down from the mines with two men on there with their rifles, six-horse teams, of course. But all the ones you see now, the horses are just running like hell, you know. I never saw them off of a trot.
0: <laughs>
1: I never saw any one of them running like that in all over the years.
0: In one of those record books that I have, it said something about the Bloomer Girls. What was all that about?
1: we come back from Colorado to Kansas in 1905. Well, I was playing up with this little town team of Ness City, Kansas in 1905, after I got there, and also in 1906. Were you pitching? Not necessarily, no. Everything? Everything. Including pitching? The pitching. And infield. I wasn't pitching, I was playing the infield. That was a semi-pro team? No, it wasn't even semi-pro, just a little town team.
0: Ness City? Ness City, yeah.
1: These were not the Boston Bloomer Girls, these are what they called the National Bloomer Girls out of Kansas City. Two boys played regularly on the team, the third baseman they called Lady Madison put on a wig. And then they had another pitcher by the name of Compton called him Lady Waddell and he wore a wig. They were advertised on posters several weeks before they got there, you know, that's where they did their publicity. They came in the fall of 1906 to play this exhibition game with us in their city. And uh, I had a good day against him, and this Logan Galbraith, who owned the club, I believe he offered me $21 a week to finish the last three weeks with him. Dad had lost his money on speculation in western Kansas land. We were very poor, and I got this opportunity to go with him. That I'd worked all my life as a kid here and there, making 50 cents or a dollar, or $4 a week or something like that. And I uh, had a chance to make this $20 a week, I suppose. But I never wore a wig. Did people know
0: that these were men or? Oh, they must have.
1: They must have known. Although you get around those little country towns, they put those wigs on pretty good and so on, but they must have known.
0: I didn't wear a wig. Didn't they know you were not a girl? Didn't the audience? Oh, sure they knew I wasn't a girl. Was that legal? I mean, was that
1: Oh, yeah, sure. As far as the the Boomer girls were concerned, anybody except the farmer boys would know that these fellas with wigs on weren't girls. They had postcards with a picture of the Bloomer girls on it, you know, and these girls would sell those things around. That's what they did mostly. We did have one good girl ball player, and you've probably heard of her. Her, ne- her name was Ruth Egan, first baseman, and she grabbed that ball. She played first base with a catching glove, and uh, she could hit pretty well.
0: What did you do in the locker room? What locker room? I mean, uh, there was all girls except for the we other. We had
1: no locker rooms in those days.
0: You went home from the ball game in uniform? That's right. But oh. well, we did that in the big league for years. We went out on buses and taxis later. And your father, when you decided to become a professional, earn your living this way, your father didn't feel that you were letting the family down and so No something. No, no. I was only 17 years old when I first reported a,
1: my first professional job, and he went with me. He went with you? Oh, yes. Little old town of Hutchinson,
0: Kansas, 116 miles from where we lived. Hutchinson, Kansas, in the Western Association. And uh, that how, was the beginning. How did they come to hear of you? They didn't have scouting systems in those days, or did they? When I went to Kansas City the next year, in 1908 in the spring,
1: I pitched against several major league clubs as they were coming up from the south, come through Kansas City. And that way, I imagine, my name got to some of the clubs, especially to Boston and Washington, and the Boston club sent a scout to look at me at Kansas City. Did you
0: get any kind of a bonus of any sort for signing? No. Lord, no, you were tickled with that to be able to get to get to play. Did you have any doubt that you would be a good ball player when you broke in?
1: When I first broke into professional ball, I didn't have that idea. But as I went along and was so successful with strikeouts and so on, I was pretty fast. I could throw a ball about as hard as anybody outside of Walter Johnson probably, and there wasn't much difference between us. But when I found out that I could throw that ball by a lot of these fellows, and it began to build up a little confidence, yes.
0: You didn't have very much trouble with control either, did you?
1: At the start, yes. When I first went up, yes but afterwards, no. In a, in a couple of years, I could put that ball in that hole, but most of the time it was just rearing back and letting them go. You weren't throwing to—I was throwing a Spot sure. Uh, uh, you, you had somebody that you knew could, couldn't could hit a curveball low and inside, I might uh, get in the clutch and get two strikes on them and put it low inside or something like that, but as a rule, I was so fast that I was just rearing back and letting them go. And you threw a hard ball all the time. That's right. For nine innings. That's right. I, never, I, I wasn't smart enough to throw a change of pace. And we I, oh, I never, never threw over half a dozen curve balls. But I was fast. I could really throw that ball so that you know, a lot of these fellows say they did this and so on. Very few fellows ever lived could throw a ball fast enough to have a hump on it. I happen to be one of them.
0: That's why they call you Smokey.
1: Yeah.
0: Who oh, gave yeah, you that name?
1: Uh, a newspaper man by the name of Paul Shannon, who was on the Boston
0: Post in the, in Boston. After you got to the big leagues? Yeah. You started with the Red Sox in 1908. Mm-hmm. And you were- Well, down. I broke into Boston when I was
1: only 18. The youngest man in the league, I think. I never saw a big league game until I broke into the big league. Did you think you'd make it when you got up there? Well, after I pitched a few games, I knew I'd make it,
0: because there was nobody as fast as I was except Walter Johnson in those days. I meant to ask you, How you were treated when you came up as a rookie with the Red Sox?
1: I wasn't looked down upon or or shunned in any way. I think they paid just as much attention to me when I first came up as they did at any other time. I can't say that I was helped, but I never asked anybody a question. They didn't answer me truthfully, I don't think.
0: Was Trish Speaker there when you got there?
1: When I went to, to Boston, Speaker wasn't back yet that fall. He had been there and they had sent him out to Little Rock. He came back in a a month or something like that, after I joined there. And the funny part of it was we started rooming together. We roomed together in the American League for 15 years, both Boston and Cleveland. Tell me about him as an outfielder. There was nobody nobody close to him, I don't think, Larry. He played from here to the road, back to second base. But I say it may be a little bit further than that, near out the garage at the most. About, oh, I'd say about 30, 40 yards back to second base. Of course, it was a dead ball in those days. But he could turn with a snap of the bat like that. He had that instinct, you know, that he knew where the ball was going and he'd turn and look over his shoulder and grab it. He was really good. Oh, he was the best of all time. I mean, yeah. he has that reputation of being the best of yeah. all time. They talk about DiMaggio and those so on they were in that speaker's class. I never saw anybody was his equal,
0: but all around hitting and fielding and throwing, and running. Speaker I, wasn't much of a runner, was he? Oh yes, he was on very fast. I mean on the bases.
1: Yes, but he didn't oh. go in for base stealing like Cobb and Clyde Milan and, and Max Carey and that bunch. But he stole quite a few bases all the time. And he
0: could hit? Oh, I say he could, yes sir. Was he a strong, well-built fellow oh, when he yes, was a young man? strong as a bull,
1: yeah.
0: What was he like as a person?
1: Perfect. Yeah, I don't think Spoke ever had an enemy. I say Spoke, that's what yeah. we always called him. Great person, great personality. Great fella. You take your real friends like Speaker and I were like that and I'd have gone to hell for him and he'd have gone to hell for me.
0: Is he the best baseball player you've ever seen?
1: No. Ty Cobb was the best player i ever saw, and Any ball player will tell you that. Any of my, any of the old time ball players. They won't even stop to think. Ty Cobb was the greatest ball player that ever lived. Ty Cobb would get on and beat you alone. I've seen many, many a time when he'd get on first base by bunting the ball to be sure to get on, bunt it and then see the second, third and home. He had every catcher in the, in the, in the league, it's crazy. He was one thought ahead of the average ball player. Well, Eddie Collins was a very, very smart ball player. I've seen Eddie have the ball ahead of Cobb, and this was an all-star game, an all-star series back in 1911, when I happened to be picked down an all-star club. I saw Eddie Collins have the, the ball ahead of Cobb, and Cobb was still sliding, safe by sliding by and grabbing it with his hand, or some damn way. He'd do it one way or another, as he saw it. it would cut you down. There's no doubt about that. He'd cut you down if you didn't give him a spot to go into that bag. If you give him a spot, he told many and many, I heard him tell him, give me room to get in there and don't worry. But if you don't give me room, I'll cut you out to get in there, which is plain common sense, isn't it?
0: Yeah. He did keep his spike sharp. There's no doubt about that. Were you around in big leagues the time that Cobb and Ligeway were battling for the crown? They chased a the fellow out of baseball right then, right in Cleveland, That's right. The time that, was it four or five hits that Ligeway got on bunts? You minute? know who it was? Red Corrigan. Well, that's the fellow that was playing third base for St. Louis.
1: Oh, he was a rookie then. Sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Red Corrigan was chased right out of the league then, and you never heard of him to come back in and he was a coach, years and years and years later. <laughs> Last ain't never a hit from a bunt in his life, he got four hits that there and there. It was from laying down bunt down the third baseman. Uh-huh. That's because Cobb was so disliked. Cobb was the most disliked, mostly one of the most disliked. I remember that this Butch Smith, who was a great catcher over there, Butch Smith used to kick hell out of Cobb about every day. He was about twice as big as Cobb, too. But Cobb would come right back and choose him the next day. But you got
0: along good with Cobb. Cobb was one of my very best friends, yeah. I wanted to ask you about Walter Johnson. Do you remember that 1912 game with Walter Johnson? Yes,
1: very well. The reason that it was a big game, you, you got the, did you ever get the history of that game? I think
0: so, but tell me.
1: Well, there's four of us today that hold the American League record of 16 straight games, 16 straight wins without a defeat. Now, up at that time, Walter Johnson had his 16 and had lost his 17th. I had about 11. Well, old foxy Clark Griffith comes in, and Walter Johnson said would have the right to defend his record of 16th straight, so he challenged Joe Wood to meet Walter Johnson. Well, well, we pitched against one another many and many a time before, and even after that. There were very few pitchers that ever lived, uh, uh, Larry, that had a fast enough ball where it would really rise. Well, I, I was one of them. Walter Johnson and I were the ones in those days, and so they advertised like prizefighters with biceps and triceps and all that stuff. And that is the only time, that, all the time I was there, and I don't think since the, the uh, people who came to the game, the fans, were sitting right alongside the third baseline and the first baseline. We were sitting up, instead of sitting on our bench back where the benches are now, and where they were then, we were sitting on chairs right up alongside those the people that were along the line.
0: Was that and in Fenway Park? In Fenway Park. Yeah, that's built. the year it
1: was open. And I won one to nothing that day. But I, I, Walter Johnson, to me, was the greatest pitcher that ever lived. Johnson
0: one nothing. Oh, yes.
1: And, uh, of course, my God, if he'd had the club behind me, him that I had behind me, he never would have lost a game. I, that's the unfortunate part of Walter's pitching. He, he had a bad club behind him all the time, and I had a good club. But Walter, to me, my God, he was... He's the only pitcher that I ever hit against, and I didn't know whether I swung under the ball or over the ball. I just missed it, that's all. And I don't know how, but you'd miss it.
0: They always tell me that Walter Johnson had a deadly fear of hitting a batter. I don't
1: think he ever had any deadly fear of it, but uh, Walter would never throw it at in. in fact, Walter and I said more or less of an unwritten law between us that we wouldn't throw curveballs to one another. And we just popped that fast, and he probably fast with me. And I popped my faster him. And one day he curved me and didn't tell me. Geez, <laughs> I curved the life out of him then from then on. <laughs> yes, sir. I think he was the greatest pitcher that ever lived because I, I don't think probably with the same natural ability, maybe Maddie might have even have been better. But Walter had the natural ability. My God, his arms would stretch from here over to there. You know, when he spread out here, he was a foot past mine on each side and a great big fella well over 200 pounds, and if he wanted to, he could throw that ball right by you. But uh, to me, a man with natural ability, he was the greatest pitcher I ever saw. Matty with his fadeaway and so on, and Matty was, uh, I don't know if you ever saw him a pitcher now, did you?
0: No, a little bit before my time. Matty could
1: start a curve there and he'd break it right down, come right down here. You know, as a rule, a curveball won't break if it's high. It breaks when it's low. But he could throw that curve ball to the fellow standing like this and be up here and, First thing you know would be right down there. And there wasn't one pitcher in the fountain could break a curveball high.
0: Cy si Young. You watched Cy si Young pitch. I was on the club with him. He went forever then, man. Yeah, yeah. Cy si was already past his peak when oh you saw him. Oh, my yes, Could he still pitch? Not too well, no. He was a big
1: fella. He was bigger than Ruth, and he had a pot on him. He used to sit there in Boston with a fellow by the name of Fred Putnam that run this place. He had a drug store and a restaurant and a rooming place where we had a flat. And he used to sit there and he used to kill a quarter or two of liquor every night. He and Fred Putnam, he's a terrific whiskey drinker, old Si. How
0: did he last so long under that? Well, maybe
1: he just started in mm. later years. I don't know. But I know he was there at the last. A fellow that really drank, and what we always claimed a fellow should never take a drink until after a ball game in the evening, a fella that happened to be a morning drinker and especially got away from anything but beer, he didn't last long. With a few exceptions, you know. Very few. Yeah. Like um, the Grover Cleveland Alexander and Bugs Raymond, I not know if you like that. But that's the same today as it was then. Yeah. As far as rowdyism in baseball, I don't think there's any more then than there is now. The biggest trouble with all the youngsters in baseball or probably any other things, chasing the women. Uh, damn women, you could have your phones taken out if they run you ragged. That was the big thing. And I don't think there's any more then,
0: and there is no. Is there any game that sort of stands out in your mind as a game that really you got more kick out of than any other one? How would
1: I think I got more kick out of the first World Series game than I did out of any other
0: game. The very first World Series game you pitched when yeah. you beat Tezro.
1: We got into the 19th in that game we're leading 4-3, to three, and there's men on 2nd and 3rd and 1 down. Fletcher is up first, I struck him out. The base hit beats us. A boot ties it. A sacrifice fly ties it. Then they sent up Doc Crandall. You heard of Doc Crandall. He never had struck out in the polo ground. They struck him out, too. So I had two strikeouts there in a a real clutch. I pitched in four games. Three of them, I guess, were against Tedrow. The last one that I worked in that I finished was against
0: Matty, I believe. Well, Matty was at the tail end of his career then. That was the game where Snodgrass dropped the pop fly. Last game of the 1912 series. Mm Mm-hmm. And it was following that, wasn't it, that uh, Chief Myers and uh, Merkel didn't touch a fly ball. But the real
1: story of that never did come out. Christy Matthews was own fault if that, that ball was dropped, because it was right in front of Merkel and he kept howling for Myers, and Myers was running all the way down the line to first base. That was your big, big, big year, wasn't it? Oh yes. Well, 1912, I won 34 and lost five. I know. And <laughs> yeah, got three out of four in the World Series, three victories and one defeat. As a pitcher, I was at the top of the heap, right along with the best, Walter and I.
0: you sure were.
1: But my arm went bad right at the peak of my career. I never pitched it without a sore arm after 1912. That was a tough break for me because you'd have heard a lot more about me if I hadn't hurt the arm. 23 years old, and the next year, I couldn't throw.
0: Yeah.
1: Otherwise, I'd have, I'd have set a record that i have been talking about yet, probably. And I'll never know what was wrong with the arms. If something went wrong, what it was, I'll never know. Christ, I was crazy about baseball. I loved to be in there, but I just couldn't. That's all there was to it. The old zip was not there. I think I started one game and didn't get too far, and I tried to finish a couple games. Each time I did, I couldn't raise my arm for about a week or 10 days. And I really thought that the arm was going to be all right, but I never did. Now, if if it is nowadays where they might have shot in some cortisone or something like that in my shoulder, it might might not have bothered me, but my arm was terrible. So, in 16, I didn't play at all, but in
0: 15, I won 15 and lost five or I have been able five. to figure out, you had a good season in 1915. You had a very that's low I was pitching about half the year, see? Yeah, but you had a very low earned run average, did oh, yes. You? Very well. Good. I in the league in that. And you won about 15 games. And
1: lost five, but see, that's only half the number. I don't pitch about every two weeks or something like that. But my arm was terrible. Next year, I couldn't even play at all. I couldn't even sit like this and hold my arm there. I couldn't raise it. What did you do the next year? Nothing. I stayed right up here and fished. And then how'd your arm feel the next year after that? I went down during the winter of 15 and 16. I went to New York. I commuted to New York every Monday morning and back on a Saturday night. And I went to a chiropractor down there behind locked doors all winter long. And then I worked out with Andy Coakley out in Columbia Gym. So I got in touch with Cleveland. They decided to take a chance and they made a deal with Boston for me and I went to Cleveland. They bought my contract because I told them I thought I was all right again. But I couldn't pitch. I tried it several times. But if I'd pitched the equivalent of anything over three or four innings, I couldn't raise my arm for two or three weeks. So finally, I got to a spot during the war in 18 that uh, several of our fellows were called away, and they had several minor leaguers they had called back up and tried in the outfield, and they were out there getting hit in the head. And so finally, the secretary of the club came down and they said, Why the hell don't you put Woody out there? He's a pretty good ball player. So they did, and I was lucky enough to get a good start and hitting well and so on, so I played the outfielder for the like next seven years for Cleveland.
0: Wasn't it a strain to shift over from pitching mm, to being no, no. an outfielder?
1: No, the only difference was as a pitcher, I was the top of the heap, and as an
0: outfielder, I was just another ball player. But that you didn't big... have any trouble making the— Oh, Lord, no. I could go get him as good as anybody. And you did well as an outfielder? Not too bad. 300 hitter, more or less?
1: Well, One year, I was over 300. I think that's about the only year. Were you always a
0: good hitter when you were a pitcher, too?
1: Well, when I first went up, it was was more or less of a joyride when I first went to Boston. But uh, later on, when I figured that a hit from a pitcher now and then would help win a ballgame, then I really got serious about it, yes. I was around a 290, I never was a 300 hitter. One year, I had uh, hit about 365 in Cleveland one year. only time in my life I ever hit over 300. (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, what happened to you that year? I haven't any, any idea.
1: I <laughs> bet 366. I, I haven't any idea.
0: But I don't know of any case where a pitcher of such stature, you know, a star pitcher way up there whose arm went bad and came back and made it as an outfielder, which is very rare. Oh, I think
1: Babe and I were the only two fellas that ever played both in the outfield and those pitcher in the
0: World Series. You wore on the Red Sox when Babe Ruth came up. Oh, yes, he came with us in 14, yeah, I went what to Boston What was this kid like? You could see that he was a good ball player, and he loved it. Did he have, even as a youngster, the piano legs and the big torso? He had the piano legs, but he wasn't so big, no. He was a slender kid, slender and well-built. Was he a pleasant person? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Friendly person? Sure. <laughs> he... he <laughs>
1: I laugh at him, yeah, from the, the teacher him. He was the goddamnest man you ever saw in your life. <laughs> that's, all the, that's all there was to it. As a kid? Many, many a time, his roommate was Ernie Shore. Many, and many a time, Ernie went up to go to bed, and the dame would be in the bed right alongside of him.
0: As a kid?
1: as a babe. He was, he was only a little kid, though, or a big kid. Oh, he was a big kid. Yeah. Well, he was just a big hick, a big farmer boy. he came come out of this convent, or, I mean, he come out of this uh, home there in Baltimore, he never had been out at all until the year before. He just didn't know what it was all about, that's all. He'd been in this home for years. Was he He was... He was very crude. Uh, I wouldn't, or you wouldn't, or anybody else that ever really knew Babe as he was, would want their kids to follow along in his footsteps. Of course, when I knew him, he wouldn't drink much, but I wound up drinking it pretty well, but his main fault, when I know him, was women. Last time I saw him, he had a couple of bonds up here at Harry Harper's over in Jersey. With respect to girls, it was more of a chaser than most? Oh, yes. Yeah. He'd go after a snake or they'd hold it for him. <laughs> he'd drop by and he'd always confided in me quite a little. he say, well, I bet 10000 on this race today and so on. Which he did, there's no doubt about that. They framed on him for several years. They, under- they cut him down to Cuba and took him for all he had one winter. Babe Ruth could never manage himself, let alone manage the ball club. And the club owners knew that. They wasn't going to let him manage their ball club. That's one of the reasons why they could take Ty Cobb now. Ty Cobb was a, was the greatest ball player that ever lived, and he figured that the, the ball players should do things as well as he did, it. and he, they couldn't do it, and he, for that
0: reason, he was a bad manager. How was Speaker as a manager now? Wonderful. You? Everybody played for him. Loved him. There was this mess with Hal Chase in 1918 where Christy Mathewson was managing Cincinnati, and Mathewson got rid of Hal Chase because he suspected him of trying to throw a game, and McGraw took him on. That was always a strange thing, too, but Hal Chase spent a year with McGraw after Mathewson didn't want him anymore. Hal Chase, do you remember I told you about
1: 1911 when they picked me on an all-star club? Hal Chase was on that club. He was begging me to get Walter Johnson in a crap game and I wouldn't do it, but I saw him get in this crap game, and I see he could spin those across there on the corners and bring them up sevens and 11s and so on whenever he wanted to. And we started playing poker, and I was Hal was on my left, and we were playing a pretty fair poker game, I forget, for us, 50 cent limit or dollar limit or something like that. And anyhow, I was 40 or 50 bucks loser, and Hal was a good friend of mine. He says, don't cut my cards. He didn't tell me out loud like that, but he just told me, don't cut my cards this time. I didn't, In case he dealt me a set of fours. So I said to myself, may be a coincidence, may not be. So I threw him in the deck, I wouldn't play him. So the next time I didn't cut his cards, he dealt me another set of fours. So after that, I cut him, that's all. So I know he could handle him. Hmm. Was Hal Chase as great a fielder as they say he was? Oh yes, wonderful. And Hal was a strictly a uh, individual player. Hal Chase would be playing first base, and he'd go over and field a ball on his right, He'd throw that ball over that bag, whether the first baseman was there or not, he'd throw it right on into the dugout. That's what I mean by being an individual player. He shouldn't throw that ball unless he could see who he's throwing it to, Mm -hmm. but he'd make his play right over that bag, whether the baseman was there or not. I've seen him do that several times. Chase and Harry Lord, uh, Harry Lord was on our ball club in Boston.
0: He never pulled anything like that when he was in Boston,
1: but he and Chase got mixed up with something on the White Sox Club, and uh, they chased him out.
0: I read a book that just came out about the Black Sox and in this book the author says that these eight men were also throwing games in the 1920s as well as throwing the 1919 World Series. You were a big league ball player then. Did you people sense anything was wrong before it was exposed? We didn't sense too much but our
1: last series with the White Sox we saw they weren't out to win. I think they could have beaten us. I don't believe that we could have won in 1920 if this thing hadn't happened at the White House because they had one of the finest ball clubs, my God, that ever, that ever was put together. Sycott used to be in Boston when I was there. I knew Sycott very well. And he told me in the Winton Hotel that they didn't dare win in 20. We don't dare win.
0: Before the World Series? Before, before the, the season was 1920? Before the season was the whole business is so funny that it's hard to understand. For instance, in that book, Psychoti comes out as a real grade A type of human being, and the author doesn't understand either. Why did these guys do that? I know, they needed money and so on, and they were paid bad, They guess, didn't need money. Chick
1: he was a ringleader in that whole thing. He always was a louse. Everybody knew he was a louse. Psycott was on the same order, only not so openly. Psycott was a trickster. He was the one that paraffined that ball. Sycott and Danforth and some more of those. They put paraffin in the seams and shined it on their pants. See? Now,
0: that was illegal in those days. All those things were illegal. How could a man get away with it for years if it was illegal? Everybody talked about Eddie Sycott's shine ball so that the umpire must have known. It they was. couldn't see him put
1: it on there. They'd throw the balls out on him. That's the reason they cut out the spitball. In order to get away from this trick stuff of the emery and the mud ball and the shiner. Of course, it was all cheating. Sycott was, they used to call knuckles. He used to throw a knuckleball, a, until he got this shiner, and then he, then he was practically invincible. You can't hit that sailor ball. That's the only thing that made Sycott
0: a great pitcher. And a man like Felsch, a great outfielder. A man like Jackson, one of the greatest hitters of all time. Jackson, to me, it,
1: it was a pitiful case. Jackson couldn't read nor write. He used to always take his roommate to go to the dining room, and his roommate would order a meal, and they'd say, bring me the same. He couldn't read. And uh, naturally, if somebody said something, he'd follow him, probably. Fels was that type of fellow, too. But not Sweet Reisberg, not uh, Buck Weaver, not Eddie Sycott, not uh, Mac Mullen. That's what I call, oh, I can look over this series, and I can't understand how Weaver could have been connected to that thing. The only way I can figure that Weaver was connected with that they mentioned it to him, and he wouldn't report it. Now, there's Claude Williams. He's no dumbbell. There was only a couple of fellas that were Uh, really uh, morons on that club, and that was Happy Falsh
0: and Joe Jackson. Gandor retired the next year and never went back to baseball. He never had a friend in baseball. He was a terrific partner. You pitched against Joe Jackson. Was he as amazing a hitter, as they say? Oh,
1: yes. Yes, sir. He he was one of the very best that ever lived. Joe Jackson would stand up there, and he'd swing from his tail and practically throw himself down. But if he got two strikes on him, he'd choke up
0: a little on his bat. The other book I read was a biography by uh, Ty Cobb, and at the end of the book he has a whole section that was all news to me, on some mess up with him, you, and Tris Speaker, and Dutch Leonard. And would you tell me what that was all about? I will. I'm not going to tell you
1: details because I wouldn't tell you too much about this thing. It's, it's it stinks. When Dutch Leonard got through in Detroit, Cobb was the manager, and. Uh, for that reason, he had a gripe against Cobb and then he wanted a speaker to take him on over in uh, Cleveland and the Spoke wouldn't take him on. And for that reason, he got sore both of them. Well, in 20, there was a dispute over some betting in order to get even. Leonard claimed this and that and so on and there was a bet placed on the ballgame, but it was not against our club, it was on our club. I was the guy that bet the dough, I, I, just, I had charge of the money. Well, I handled this through a gate tender in Detroit, who contacted the bookies, and uh, their money was bet. The money was collected, and this little son of a gun come down. We knew him very well, this gate tender in Detroit, and brought this money down to the train as we were leaving Detroit. And I gave him, after keeping equal splits for three fellows, I gave him the extra money, which amounted to about thirty or forty bucks for placing the bet. And this was just the same as betting on a prize fight or anything else. We bet on ourselves. There was nothing crooked about it on our part. How often do teams bet on themselves? Never. Never. That's the only bet I ever made in my life. And that is because somebody else wanted to bet it and I handled the money. But this thing in 20 wasn't exactly on the up and up. I've got to admit that. Because I knew from what Sycott had told me in Cleveland that the White House didn't dare win. But I didn't know through a couple other fellas on the Detroit, ball club, but they weren't going to play their heads off to beat us. That wasn't they going to say we we're going to lay down and give you the game, they didn't, yeah. that wasn't said. Well, anyhow, I knew that the White House didn't dare win that year. And this got back to Landis, and he had a letter that I had written, and uh, Landis called me over to New York and said, you write that letter? And I said, I sure did, there was my name on <laughs> it. And Leonard had blackmailed Navin in Detroit for so much for that letter, and he still kept copies of it. And then he went ahead and tried to blackmail, I don't know how the hell he tried to get some more money out of somebody out of that, by going after Cobb and, and spilling this whole story, which was true. I was at the World Series with Landis down in New York, and he says, this is Landis. I knew Judge Landis very well. The judge says, are you going to have any trouble over this thing, Joe? And I says, I don't think so. He says, you let me know if you do And I says, I'll make a trip up to New Haven. That was a letter you wrote. Yeah. Leonard. There he kept this letter that I had written him after I got home here one winter. I wrote him out in Fresno. A letter. The same as I write to my brother. I trusted him and I wrote him this letter and he kept it and cashed in on it. I understand he got twelve or fifteen thousand dollars, the first from Navin in Detroit. Then they cost it for a while and then he come out with it again. But he kept the letter all the time. The letter had that much dynamite in it? yeah. The letter quoted the the amount of money that was bet, and his share was enclosed in the letter. I loaned that son of a bitch two hundred dollars to buy his first motorcycle in Boston when he first joined us, and he made the crack that he didn't mind what he was doing to Cobb and Speaker, but he hated hard Woody. But nevertheless, he did it. That dirty little son of a bitch of a Leonard. He died a millionaire, but he died young, and a great little pitcher too. But he was a first-class crook. How did Speaker and Cobb get involved in it? Cobb and Speaker put up some of this money to make the bet. And uh, Leonard broadcast this thing because Cobb let him go and Speaker wouldn't take him on.
0: Is it for that reason that both Cobb and Speaker left their jobs at Cleveland and Detroit? Yeah, yeah.
1: But they didn't get out of baseball. They went to the athletics. I'd like to see what Cobb had to say about it because I we'll do believe both, Cobb right? would tell the real dog. They got together with an attorney in Detroit. My greatest friend spoke Cobb. And they got a bunch of stuff written up and typewritten and then deposited in a deposit vault in the bank in Cleveland. And if they would have chased Cobb and Speaker out of baseball, this would have all come out. Cobb has a whole chapter on it. He doesn't hide it at all. Well, he didn't hide something, but he didn't tell it as it was, I'll bet you a million bucks.
0: I don't believe Cobb could afford to,
1: to tell a story. As I know the story to yeah. be true. I have never told that to a soul in my life. I haven't even told it to my brother. Well, I didn't tell you anything. It wasn't straight and on the level, I'll tell you that. That's one reason why this thing did really hurt me, because that's the first and only accusation in my life I ever had against me, I know of.
0: You won the Cleveland's when Ray Chapman
1: was killed, weren't you? I carried him off the field, Leslie maker and I, yes. It must have been a terrible thing. It was because this dirty louse of a Carl Mays, who incidentally was quite a pitcher, I understand, I don't know this for sure, but he made the crack to some of us fellows that he was going to take Chappie out of there that day.
0: Is that right?
1: In fact, after he hit him, hit him back there at the base of the skull. After he hit him, he went in and picked up the ball and threw it to first and raised hell with the empires because they didn't call him out. And uh, Chappie never did come to. You knew Stanley Kowalski? Oh, yeah. He and I used to play three cushions together all the time. Three cushions, business. Really. he's running a gas station out at South Bend, Indiana.
0: He was a great pitcher.
1: Yes, he was. He was one of the best football pitchers I ever saw.
0: Yeah, a
1: great competitor. He won three—incidentally, he one of the pitchers that won three games in one World Series, but that was a five out of
0: nine series against Brooklyn in 20. And you were in that series, too, weren't I you? I was an outfielder in that series, yeah. yeah. You must have been there the day that Bill guns made the Unisopics. Oh, office. sure. Did you know oh, what yeah, the hell bad. happened all of a sudden? Bang, 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 three oh, outs? sure, sure you could see
1: it. When he caught this ball, he went over, and and uh, Tag second base, and the other fella run right into him. That'll your triple point.
0: You were on a college faculty for how many years? I was on no college faculty. I was a baseball coach, and that was all. How, how long did you coach at Yale?
1: Twenty years. 1923, starting in the spring of 23 through 42.
0: How did you get to go to Yale? How did that come about? I a
1: mean? likes baseball. He's, he stays around it as long as he can. And I was just about through, because I'd already been in the league for 15 years, my arm had gone bad, and I was j- just another ball player as an outfielder, so Spoke came and asked me what I'd like to go, and I told him sure. Because in those days, our youngsters were just, they were very young. We'd come home off a trip of three or four weeks. The kids wouldn't know who I was, so I was more or less of a homebody, and I thought I'd rather be so that I'd be around the kids and the family more. So I accepted the offer to go there. They took over my big league contract, paid me
0: the same money that I'd given in Cleveland. Did you enjoy those 20 years?
1: I can't say that I enjoyed it as much as playing myself, because it's much easier to do a thing yourself if you have the ability. Than is to try to sell some kids how to do it, yeah. and that is one of the toughest things to do at Yale. These boys would rather come out and make an athletic team than they would to graduate Phi beta kappa. They come out and here I am, make a ball player out I of me. Mean, you knew damn well I meant you saw them; they couldn't play ball. That is the toughest job we had, was to cut those boys off of the squad.
0: Any good ball players come out of there that
1: later played professional baseball? Very few, there's a class of boys who goes to Yale, Harvard, and Princeton that, as a rule, have something bigger in mind when they get out, rather than to go into professional ball. But you still enjoy baseball very much. Oh Lord, yes, You're I do. Even to watch it. I stopped by all these little league, midget league games.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you had to do it all over again, would you be a ball player like you were? No, oh, yes. I had to
1: do all over again, the chance there I would have saved my arm a little. I used to love to throw. I had such a good arm, I used to like to see that ball go. And I used to stand and practice as a catcher to throw to second base and so on. And just rear back and let her go. I probably wouldn't have done all that. I'd probably save my arm like Whitey Ford does. He's a little kink or something, he goes and gets out and stuff like that. I think if Mickey Mantle hadn't been plagued with this trouble he's had for these years, I think he's one of the greatest ball players that ever lived. As I said, when he first went in there, I made the crack. I said, he'll make them forget about Joe DiMaggio. And I think if he'd have been whole all the time, I think he would have. I was a lot like Mantle when I first started. My first year with the Red Sox, I had a broken toe. And later on, I had appendicitis and different things. And I only really pitched three years, 10, 11, and 12. But even that, I won 115 games, frankly, in those three years. But I used to love to be in there. I don't know of anything that I would rather have done. Not very many men can say that. In fact, as I've always said, my life has been a vacation, and, and if I, I'd have played ball for nothing, if I could have afforded it, I know that's all I lived for when I was a kid was to play baseball.